Isaiah chapter 8 today, all right? Ladies and gentlemen, make your way in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 8, with a message entitled, To the Word, To the Word. And so let's take our hearts that direction. Father, once again, we just say thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your faithfulness, Lord, to meet with us and to minister to us. And God, all we want to do is know you and be transformed by you and bring glory to you. And so we pray today that you would just teach us by the power of your spirit. Lord, that you would fill us each and every one, beginning with me, Lord, fresh. Uh, Lord, that your spirit might flow and move, and that there would be a great refreshing, restoring, reviving, and awakening, Lord, in this place for the glory of your name. And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. And we all say, amen. amen. Uh, listen, how do you handle a no-win situation. I mean, from all appearances, there's just no way out. Maybe you've made some decisions and the inescapable, destructive consequences are upon you, and now what do you do, right? This is where the king in our current passage was positioned when Isaiah the prophet came to him. Ahaz, the king of Judah, who by all accounts was a very wicked man, had lived his life without regard to God, making decisions with no consideration for God, and now the ramification of his ways are upon him, and Isaiah comes to him with a message from the Lord. And essentially, God throws him a lifeline. God is so good. He's so gracious and merciful. You know, Ahaz, you have lived your life with no regard for me. I'm telling you now, turn to me, forsake your sin, take heed to my word. You'll be forgiven. You'll be established. However, if you will not believe, you will not endure. That is, your reign will be cut off. God was exhorting him not to react in fear, but to trust him by faith. Yes, the outlook was uh, pretty, by all accounts, it was bleak, but God says, try the uplook. And maybe that's a word for someone here today. You've lived your life without regard to God. You've not really given any attention to God, and the, uh, the, the destructive ramifications are upon you, and God says, now listen, turn from your sin and trust in me. He's throwing you a lifeline Today, try the uplook. The outlook's no good. Try the uplook. And guys, we could take and place Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 right over the top, kind of an aerial uh, view of uh, Isaiah 7 through 9, perhaps over the top of uh, your life or your current situation. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. But Ahaz didn't trust in the Lord. In fact, he became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. And so, you're with me. Let's take our attention to the beginning of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. Moreover, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mehar or Mar Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of, how do you say, uh, Jeberechiah, however you say. Uh, and then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son 
And then the Lord said to me, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken before or taken away before the king or by the king of Assyria. Now, perhaps you recall from chapter 7 that the northern kingdom of Israel had banded together with Syria. And they had brought absolute devastation and decimation upon Judah and had gone up into, and sur not into, but up to and surrounding the capital city of Jerusalem. They were going to make war against it. And their plan was to just kill or dispose of Ahaz and to put this puppet kind of king in his place. And that's when God threw the lifeline uh, to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah. And he said, look, what they're wanting to do is not going to succeed. In fact, it's not going to be long from this point forward as far as history is concerned that uh, Syria and Israel are to the north there, uh, Ephraim he's been referring him to, uh, won't even be players anymore on the world stage. And God assured Ahaz that their plots and their plans would fail. But rather than trusting the Lord to take care of it, uh, he turned to the king of Assyria, not to be confused with Syria, but the king of Assyria, and he paid him a huge sum of money uh, to come and fight for him. Now, the invasion was already doomed to fail. God had already established that fact. However, the fallout of disobedience from Ahaz, it would take its toll. But here God continues to underscore exactly what's going to happen concerning the nations, these nations that Ahaz is so worried about. Why? So that he will be assured, no doubt, no shadow of a doubt, that God is the one who's in control. It would not be the great military prowess or competence of the king that would save them. No, God was with them. You remember the word Emmanuel. God is with us, and God would save them, not because they were so great, but because God is so great, amen? And here's the thing, guys. I know it's a bit of a stretch to tie this next statement to our current context, but I just want to go on record saying that the reason God saves us is not because we're so great, but it's because He's so great, Amen. Uh, it's not our wonderful personality or tremendous skill, you see, that draws uh, God to us and wants to save us, you know. No, it's the greatness of His grace. It's the greatness of His mercy springing forth from His love that's so unrelenting. And by His great grace, He saves us. But God tells Isaiah, I want you to take a large scroll and I want you to write on it with a man's pen. Now, what's up with the man's pen thing? You know, it's like, uh, don't use a dainty little lady's pen. I want you to use a man's pen to write this. Is that what he's saying, really? I mean, no, listen, no. Uh, the idea here is that of the common language. He says, just take a, use a man's pen. In other words, use the common penmanship. Guys, in other words, don't, Isaiah, I'm going to give you a message, and I want you to communicate it but not in a way that's this super spiritual cryptic kind of code, uh, not in some sort of uh, scholarly fashion, but just keep it simple so that everyone can understand. Uh, when 
God was speaking to, to Habakkuk. He said it this way. He said, write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. In other words, when someone reads it, they know what to do with it. They can instantly put it into practice because they understand it. You've made it plain, okay? Listen, when a pastor, preacher, teacher is communicating the word of God, the last thing they should want to do is present it in some complicated, uh, difficult to understand kind of fashion, leaves you feeling like, well, you know what, I just must not be on their level. I mean, they're talking in a way that's way above me and all, you know. Shame on that man. Now listen, I'm not saying that uh, you shouldn't be diligent, right, to present yourself approved unto God, a, a workman that need not be ashamed, one who's rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm not saying that you shouldn't put in work to gain and grasp an understanding of the word of God. But what I am saying is that it's the job of the preacher to make plain the word of God so that we all understand it and can respond appropriately to it. Are you with me? So, Isaiah, go and get a large scroll and write something super plain on it so that everyone understands. In other words, this is a public message. Mahar shalal hash baz. Simple, right? You understand that perfectly and plainly. No, it means quick to the plunder and swift to the spoil. It was a battle cry of sorts. It's, uh, soldiers would shout this kind of phrase was they were defeating and plundering their enemies. It was a word of warning concerning the coming invasion. And so Isaiah goes before two priests so that they can witness when and what he's writing so that they can testify to the truth, right? By the mouth of two or more witnesses, a thing will be established. And they're going to testify that Isaiah wrote this well before it ever came to pass. That he's received a word from the Lord, he's making it plain. And then Isaiah goes to his wife, she conceives and bears a son, presumably, approximately nine months later. And God says, remember the phrase that you wrote on that scroll? Um, that's what you're to name your son. And God gives him more details concerning what's to happen with Syria and Israel. He says, before your son can even say, mama or dada or mommy or daddy or you know however we would say in our uh you know vernacular before you can say mom or dad so in other words within two years or so of the of the time that he had written this down uh he's saying that assyria will be quick to the plunder of damascus which was the capital of syria and swift to the spoil of Samaria, which was the capital of Israel. Now, that's the two nations that were currently coming against Judah, right? So he's saying here that Assyria is going to completely annihilate them. As a matter of fact, not only will they crush Syria, but they will carry off completely into captivity Israel. And it won't be, the again, the brilliant military strategy of Ahaz that saves them. It will be the sovereign grace of God. And even so, we know it's no work of our own. Again, I'm kind of taking a liberty to make an application here, but it's not by our works that we're saved, but by His grace. Not something that we've done or something that we do, but by what He's done on our behalf through the cross, right? 
By the way, it's kind of interesting here that Isaiah's wife is referred to as the prophetess. Uh, now, we don't know if she had a prophetic ministry outside of, you know, obviously bringing forth this son, or if she's simply referred to as a prophetess by way, uh, by, by the fact that she is the prophet's wife. Now, there are certainly many examples of prophetesses in Scripture, Miriam, um, you know, uh, Deborah. Uh, there was a number of daughters of uh, Phil, was it seven daughters of Philip or something like that? Four? I don't remember the number. Some of you probably know in the book of Acts that were operated as a prophet. So, you know, perhaps she, you know, ministered in, in like fashion, but again, it could just be her relationship to her husband that's in view. But for you trivia type folks, this is the longest name found in Scripture. Okay, what's the longest name in the Bible? Well, allow me to introduce myself. I am Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And I'm, you know, I'm a mouthful for sure, right? Uh, look at verse uh, 5. And then the Lord spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloh that flow softly and rejoice in Rezin and in Remaliah's son, now, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And he will go up over all his channels and go up over all his banks. And he will pass through Judah and he will overflow and pass over and he will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. Why? Emmanuel. There's the word, for God is with us. Now, at this point, at the beginning in verse 5, some people believe that Isaiah has turned his attention to the northern kingdom of Israel. It's completely possible. Now, we know that verses and chapters and breaks, stuff like that, they're not in the original scrolls, right? So, I mean, it's possible that he stops there and he turns there. Um, I, personally, I'm not so incredibly persuaded that's the case, but the point remains applicable either way. Now, the reason that people think that is because he addresses Rezin, right, who is Syria's king, and Remaliah's son there in verse 6, who is Israel's king, and he speaks of the coming invasion uh, that's coming upon them from Assyria. And as again, that's all true. Now, I personally tend to lean more to the side that he's still speaking to Judah because of how he resolves it all in verse 10. But the point is that the people weren't content with the provision and the supply that God had allotted them, the gentle and humble peace that he had sought to avail to them. They refused the little stream, uh, the humble brook of Shiloh that supplied life to them, had been good to them. Instead, they preferred the power plays of the wicked leaders, Rezin, Remaliah's son. Essentially, what God is communicating to them is that since they didn't appreciate the peaceable, softly flowing waters of Shiloh, that he would bring to them the overflowing, out-of-control rivers of Assyria. Now, Assyria 
you Bible students already know their capital city was, anyone know, just off the top? Nineveh, sound familiar? Uh, about 30, 40 years prior to this, guess who went and gave them a visit? Jonah, yes, right? And the city of Nineveh uh, and the, the, the Assyrian region there, founded on the great Tigris River, centered upon the strong and mighty Euphrates River. Now, this is an object lesson of sorts that God is communicating to them through the different rivers and the way they flow and the soft and the peaceable and the mighty and, the, uh, and all. And, and, and I want you to see here that not being content with God's provision, wanting something greater, something that gives them the impression of power to the nations. Here they are, little Judah, and there's all these, uh, you know, Egypt and Assyria and Syria and all these m- massive nations around them. The basic principle here is be careful what you wish for because you just might get it, okay? They were this little humble nation and they wanted more than what God had established for them. They weren't content when they looked at the glory of the mighty nations around them and all. And God is saying, since you envy these strong and mighty rivers, I'm gonna release a flood into your land, okay? Ahaz, the king of Judah, is like a a gentle flowing stream compared to what's coming. The the Assyrian king would be like a wild, out-of-control river overflowing its banks. Listen, what's the take-home from this section of Scripture? That God takes offense when we persist in rejecting what he supplies for us. Okay? God takes offense when we persist in rejecting what he's provided for us. You want something different because you don't like what you have. That's fine. God will give you something different, but you won't like that either. Okay? Remember when the children of Israel grew discontented over the manna that God had been providing in the wilderness, and they all wanted meat in the desert and all of that, and God said, you want meat? All right, it's going to be coming out your nostrils, you know? Their lust for more made for their judgment. They weren't content. What does the Bible say? Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich, those who want more, those who are seeking after greater things, you see. And it's not wrong to have these things. It's the motive of the heart in pursuing these things, prioritizing these things. They fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. You know, we think we know what's best for us. Listen, God knows what's best for us. Okay? It's, and listen, it's not our comfort that he's interested in so much as it is our character. Not our happiness so much as our holiness. Now listen, you have all eternity to look forward to, to live in comfort, to experience joy inexpressible and filled with glory. This life is preparatory, Okay? God would have us walk by faith, learning contentment with that with which he provides for us. And how many of you know this? I've said this. If I said this once, I've probably said it 10,000 times. The flesh is never satisfied. No matter how much you have, it's never going to quite be enough. 
You know, oh, just a little more, then I'd be happy. Man, if I just had a new car, then I'd be happy. Man, if my house was just this big, then I'd be happy. Man, if I just made $25,000 a year more, then I would really be satisfied. You thought that when you made $25,000 a year less than you make now. I mean, you know that. Right? The flesh is never satisfied. Godliness with contentment is where the gain is found. It's true that Assyria would annihilate Syria and Israel to the north. But Isaiah says they're not going to stay within the banks or the channels of their river. They would overflow into Judah. And they would flow or they would come in like a flood with violence and destruction and the waters of the Syrian might would come right up to their necks. In other words, they wouldn't take, they wouldn't be able to completely annihilate or decimate, you know, the nation. Uh, they'd take everything but Jerusalem. God wouldn't allow them to be completely overtaken, but he says, but like a bird outstretching its wings, Assyria would fill the breadth of their land. Now, if you want to read up on that, it's found in 2 Kings chapter 18. But that's what the prophet means when he writes here in verse 9, be shattered, O you peoples, be broken and be broken in pieces, give ear all you from far countries. He says, you can gird yourself, but be broken in pieces. He repeats it for emphasis. He says, take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word. In other words, form your plans, but it's not going to stand, for God is with us. Uh, God was in control, okay? God was with them, that is Judah, and would not allow them to be completely overtaken. Uh, didn't matter how mighty Assyria was on the world stage. God was with Judah. And so their attempt to take them over ultimately would fail. Now, Judah would suffer the ramifications of their decisions, but God would keep them from total destruction. Again, why? Because they were so great? No, but because of his great grace, because it wasn't tied. His plans, we talked about this a little bit last week. If you have a plan and God has a plan and they're not the same plan, guess whose plan's going to come to fruition, right? And so uh, God is just saying, there is no counsel against him that will stand. Now, in verse 11, for the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand, you might underline that, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts him you shall hallow, let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel and as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, uh, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and be taken. What a word, I think, in due season for you and for me. I suppose for any believers of any time, but God speaks with a strong hand. What does that mean? In non-negotiable terms, right? This is the way it is to be. You should not, and what was the word? You should not walk in the ways of this people. In other words, translation, don't follow after the ways and the rationale of the world. 
okay? Don't follow after the ungodly political persuasions of popular opinion because that's the safe move. That's what he's saying. Stay true to the ways and to the word of God. This word conspiracy um, in verse 12 could also be translated confederacy or even treason, okay? Uh, last week I informed you that Ahaz had taken counsel and had decided that uh, he was going to reach out to Assyria to come and save him. And God was telling him that would snap back on him. That would come to, he would come to regret. But it's probable that this is the political persuasion being pitched and that one could be accused of treason, okay, if they spoke against it. And that's why God says, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Okay, don't say conspiracy. Don't say confederacy. Don't follow along with the ungodly, popular, political persuasion of the masses because that's the safe play. You stay true to my word. You don't worry about their threats. Don't worry about what they're saying. Listen, when you're considering a course of action, what are the questions? Here's the thing I want you to think about. What are the questions that you ask yourself when you're thinking about doing something? The exhortation here is, is don't ask is it safe? But rather ask, is it right? Okay? Uh, don't ask, will it please people? Ask, will it please the Lord? Okay? God is here telling Isaiah, and by proxy, the godly remnant of Judah, and by, by way of application, you and me, don't buckle to political pressure that runs contrary, in complete opposition to my word. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Okay? Look at verse 13. He says, the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Here's the idea. You and me, we are being moved or motivated by fear at any given moment, uh, the fear of man or the fear of God, okay? God is saying, don't fear man, fear me. Uh, Jesus said that like this. He said, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you whom you should fear, fear him who, after he has killed, has power to cast into hell. He says, I'm telling you, fear him. In other words, the eternal perspective is everything, ladies and gentlemen. You can worry about what man thinks, or you can worry about what God thinks, but you can't do both, okay? You can seek to leave, uh, live a life that's pleasing to other people, to man, or you can seek to lead a life that's pleasing to God, but you can't do both. Now, that can mess with you sometimes because we tend to think logically, rationally, uh, but God will oftentimes move or move us in a direction that defies logic and invites criticism. Listen, be willing to fail in the eyes of man in order to remain faithful in the eyes of God. Does that make sense? 
be willing to fail in the eyes of man to remain faithful in the eyes of God. He is your sacred place, your place of protection. But if you choose the fear of man, he says he's your stumbling stone and rock of offense. Uh, to believe in God, to trust in his word is to have your refuge, to have a sanctuary. Should you choose not to believe, Christ becomes your stumbling stone and your snare, meaning you will either be saved by him or destroyed by him. There's no in-between. Okay, that's why Jesus said you're either for me or you're against me. Be hot or be cold. There is nothing in between. And guys, this is a strong affirmation of the deity of Jesus Christ because here the reference in verse 13, he says, is to the Lord of hosts. But you're going to see it again and again throughout the, the book of Isaiah when they talk about this stumbling stone. But when you kind of transition over into the New Testament, it's over and over again applied to Jesus. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. In other words, you will either fall upon the chief cornerstone of Jesus Christ, be broken and be saved, or it will fall on you and grind you in judgment. Okay? The Lord is one of two things in every individual's life. He's either your best possible friend and your savior or your worst possible enemy and your destroyer. There's, there's, there's nothing in between. Now, in verse 16, we read, Bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples, and I will wait on the Lord who hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. And here am I and the children whom the Lord has given me. And we are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Uh, in other words, Isaiah is saying, look, I'm not going to put my hope in Ahaz. Uh, I'm not going to wait upon Assyria to deliver us. My hope is in the Lord. You know, David said, some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. In other words, it's not about the military. It's not about technology. It's about trusting in Jesus Christ. He would wait upon him. This is a kind of that, has that nuance of as for me and my house, right? Kind of has that feel to it. And I want you guys to notice that waiting on the Lord is connected to his word. I want you to see that. He says, bind up the testimony Seal the law among my prophets. In other words, Isaiah is saying, look, I know what God has said, and I'm going to trust in him, not the ungodly political persuasion of the people and the leaders of the nation. That's, that's not where I'm going. I'm trusting in the word of God. And by the way, I should point out that waiting on the Lord, this phrase, waiting on the Lord, is not a euphemism for passive inactivity. Well, you know, I'm not serving, not doing anything, just kind of waiting on the Lord, you know. Guys, think of a waiter like in a five-star restaurant. Now, personally, I've never been to a five-star restaurant, at least that I know of. I mean, I think I'd know if I was in a five-star restaurant. Been to a couple of nice ones. You know, there I was down in uh, New Orleans uh, years ago, and we were doing the, the touristy thing, remember that? And we were all sweaty and gross, and we... We found Emerald Lagasse's restaurant. 
You remember that guy? Bam! He was always kicking it up a notch and everything. He was at the height of his, his food network career and all. We was like, wow, let's go here. We walked in, and I mean, we were all sweat, torn, and tattered. It was humid, just like you'd think it would be down there. And we could tell when we walked in that they were just like, <laughs> you know, tourists or something. You know what I mean? Uh, but here was the thing. I mean, there was like three or four or five guys that surrounded our table. And, you know, it was, it was like, if your glass gets below a quarter empty, they're filling it up. If crumbs hit the table, they pick up your plate, sweep them off. I mean, they're, they're, which I kept them very busy for that because I'm not the cleanest eater. I enjoy my food, and it's just kind of, it's like, uh, it's flying everywhere, it seems like. But um, they're very attentive to you, uh, very responsive to even what they might perceive as your desire. Even so, as we wait upon the Lord, we're to be focused on Him, attentive to Him, very responsive to what we even perceive His desire to be. Look at, at verse 18. Isaiah says, Here am I, and the children whom the Lord has given me, we are for signs and wonders in Israel. In other words, Isaiah and his family were an object lesson to the nation. He had two sons. Remember that? Now, the older one we just read of, his name was Speed to the Spoil and Swift to the Plunder. Yeah, you met my son. Uh, but um, in other words, there's an invasion on the way, but his younger son was named A Remnant Shall Return. God will restore. And Isaiah, of course, means salvation is of the Lord. And so that's where their hope was to be fixed. Question, what's the message that people get when they look to you and to your family? Think about that. What's the message that your life sends out to the people around you? Can they see the goodness and the mercy and the faithfulness of God in your lives? Listen, you are the light of the world. You are his witnesses, whether you like it or not. The only question is, what kind of witness you are, right? But what's the message that you and your family communicate to the people around you? Look at verse 19, and when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living to the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to this word, it's because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. And then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. Well, that's a good ending note. <laughs> Guys, it's interesting 
where people will turn in times of crisis. Um, it's not uncommon that people will consult mediums or tarot card readers, channelers, psychic hotline and all, you know, people who whisper and mutter, they're channeling and all. But underline this. If you've already closed your Bible, you need to open it back up. I'm just kidding. But if you're an underliner, underline this. Should not a people seek their God? Listen, if you can't turn to your God in times of crisis, um, you're serving the wrong God, okay? Why turn to darkness when you're seeking light, that is, insight, understanding, what to do, where to go, you're wanting direction, you want to, you know, why seek the dead on behalf of the living? It doesn't even make sense. To the law and to the testimony, you see. He's saying, go to God's word. Listen, if the person you're seeking direction from doesn't point you to the word of God, well, it's because there's no light in them. What does the Bible say? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Peter referred to the word of God as a light that shines in the darkness. Guys, people are looking for answers. They're caught up in crisis. And they'll go to people who speak to demons or claim to be in touch with a relative that has died or whatever. They'll call psychic hotlines. They'll, you know, there's these famous Hollywood mediums and they have these rooms of people in there. You know, I'm getting an impression right over here. I'm seeing, and, and they, the, the whole thing begins. God's word condemns all that kind of stuff. Peter tells us that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness in his word through the knowledge of him who has called us. Don't go to the father of lies when you're looking for truth. Go to the author of truth, even Jesus Christ. If you need light shed on a situation, don't go to the world. Go to the word, you see. And this is a good exhortation, I think, even to remind pastors and preachers and teachers and communicators of the word of God today. Enough with the overplayed anecdotes, enough with the jokes or touching stories about your own life and all, you know, enough with the emphasis on entertaining people and scratching, itching ears. Give people the word of God Amen. to the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. If there's a discrepancy, listen, ladies and gentlemen, if there's a discrepancy between the word of God and the one who is giving the message, you know, what they're saying and what the Bible says, you don't have to, well, the Bible says, but he said, I wonder, you don't have to wonder who's wrong. The messenger's wrong, okay? The messenger doesn't judge the word. The word judges the messenger. Um, Abby, if you want to make your way up. And it says here that it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God. In other words, when judgment falls, rather than turn to God, they'll be enraged with God. It's kind of mind-blowing. 
But we see this. We see this in uh, Revelation chapter 16 as well. When God is, when judgment is being poured out, rather than turn from their sin, rather than trust in the Lord, rather than, you know, seek after him, they curse him and deny him. And what's the result? Well, you look to the earth. In other words, you have to look to the world. When you won't look to the word, you look to the word. They don't look to God. They look to the, to the earth, to the world, and see trouble, darkness, gloom of anguish, and they're driven deeper into darkness. Now, Jesus spoke in John chapter 3 how that light has come into the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And when people practice evil, they hate the light. They won't come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. But ultimately, to refuse the light is to be driven into darkness. Listen to me. Jesus is the light of the world. But if you prefer darkness, leading to despair, then outer darkness, eternal darkness is where ultimately you will abide. If you won't come to the light, God will give you darkness, outer darkness. God won't force anyone to come into the light, but he would plead with you, be reconciled to Christ, come to the light, find forgiveness of sin and new life in him. Let's bow our hearts. God, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. You show us the way through your word. And I pray, God, that you would strengthen us in our resolve to honor your word. That we would be kept from falling prey to the ungodly political persuasions of popular opinion and the ways of the world, but that we would wait upon you, that we would find our hope in you. And God, I just pray for every family that's here today. I pray that our lives be a message to those around us of the hope and the help and the healing that's found in you. God, we trust in you. and We trust in your word. 